One of the things I like to do when I'm flying into a city that I've never visited is to look out the window of the plane as much as I can as we are approaching. I like to look out as much as I can to try to get a sense of the place from a, a high level. I like to see the lay of the land. I look to, like to look and see how the city is structured. I like to see if there's any natural beauty, mountains, rivers, uh, lakes, or so forth. I love that perspective. I love the high view perspective of the place before getting on the ground and walking and seeing what's right in front of me. That high level overview is nice for getting a sense of the place. Well, we are beginning a three-part sermon series going through the book of Leviticus at a high level. We are going to be looking at the book of Leviticus from a high level in an overview type of way. Why should Christians read and study the book of Leviticus? It's not exactly a place you go if you're looking for some quick inspiration. Not exactly a book you turn to if you want some immediate application to your everyday life. Leviticus is even sometimes referred to as the place where Bible reading plans go to die. <laughs> you begin your Bible reading plan going through the book of Bible with Genesis, and Genesis has some interesting, compelling narrative. And then you turn to Exodus, which also begins with some interesting, compelling narrative. But then Exodus slows down a little bit towards the end because the end of Leviticus deals with all the instructions regarding the tabernacle that the people of Israel were commanded to assemble and construct. And you start getting to all these details about the tabernacle and you start to maybe lose focus a little bit. And then when you get into Leviticus, the narrative seems to slow down even more. And you can start to lose sight of the big picture as you work your way through the details of the sacrifices and purity laws. If we are honest, it is challenging to understand Leviticus and know how it applies to our lives. So why do a series on Leviticus? Well, we preach through books of the Bible during our Sunday gatherings. We have what we would say is a high view of God's Word, a high view of Scripture. We believe that God's Spirit works through the ministry of His Word. And so we want to be faithful to uphold the Word and to preach the Word. And therefore, we like to preach through books of the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, usually alternating between the two. So, for example, earlier this year, we preached through the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And most recently, we preached through the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. So you might be thinking, well, now we're due for a New Testament book. And indeed, the plan is to begin a new sermon series in a few weeks going through the book of Hebrews. We look forward to our sermon series uh, going through Hebrews, again, starting in just a few weeks. But one of the things we will see in the coming months is that in making his exhortations, the author of Hebrews draws extensively from the Old Testament scriptures with a particular emphasis 
on the book of Leviticus. What also becomes clear is that the Christians to whom he was originally writing knew the Old Testament scriptures well. So before we begin our 24 sermons through the book of Hebrews, we are going to do this three-part high-level series through Leviticus to provide us with some background that will, provide, that will prove helpful in understanding and appreciating Hebrews. As one Bible scholar pointed out, the author of Hebrews is constantly making the point, if you really want to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how much greater he is than anything else, you need to understand Leviticus. With that being said, when we take the time to rightly understand Leviticus, we will find that it is a truly wonderful and edifying book. But it might not feel that way when we are sitting down and reading it. Why is that? Well, Jay Sklar, who is a Bible scholar specializing in the book of Leviticus, gives three reasons why Leviticus is such a hard book for Christians to understand and enjoy. First, the cultural context is so different than ours. The people of Israel living uh, during the, the period of time of Leviticus lived in tents in the desert. We live in apartments and houses. The way they prepared their, and ate their food was so different than the way we prepare and, and eat our food. Uh, their jobs were different than our jobs. Their government and politics were different than ours. Everything about their life was so different. And so when we're reading this book, we need to be mindful of that. We need to be mindful of the cultural differences between them and us. Also, he points out that Leviticus uh, consists of a lot of law. We don't tend to enjoy reading law. And Christians can even tend to have a negative view of law. We much prefer to read narrative, compelling, interesting stories that draw us in. And so the law can sometimes be challenging for us as we read. The third reason he gives is that we fail to understand the literary context of Leviticus. We fail to understand Leviticus within its immediate context, meaning what comes before Leviticus, what comes after Leviticus. We, we fail to truly see and understand how it fits within this incredible story in Scripture. Now, I suspect that there are some among us who have studied the Bible for years and have come to love and appreciate that book. And if that is you, it is probably because you have learned to read Leviticus within its context and understand the purpose of the sacrifices, priests, laws, and feasts, and see what they point to and how they are fulfilled ultimately in the New Testament. And thus you're able to see the beauty, goodness, and glory of this book. Well, that is the goal for all of us. We all want to progress in this way. We want to be able to appreciate, enjoy, understand Leviticus, recognizing, understanding that it is God's word given to us for our good and his glory. 
And hopefully, by looking at Leviticus from a high level and getting a lay of the land, so to speak, we will be able to better appreciate the details of the book. As we study Leviticus, we will see that Leviticus addresses a fundamental issue of utmost importance, first for the people of God, but really for all of humanity. To understand why and how the book addresses such an important issue, it must be understood within its place in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch refers to the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the first five books of the Bible are referred to in shorthand as the law. Jesus referred to the first five books uh, as the law of Moses. So the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five books must be understood together. So Genesis begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And we see that God created man, male and female, in his image with this special purpose of knowing God, obeying God, enjoying God, and glorifying God. And he placed them in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was his special place where his people could dwell with him living under his rule, and enjoying his presence. The Garden of Eden was wonderful, beautiful, and glorious. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, living under his rule, obeying his commands, and enjoying his presence with them. It was perfect until they decided to disobey God, until they decided to go out from under his rule, until they rejected him as their Lord and King. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's good command. They sinned, they rebelled, and they suffered the consequences. They were removed from God's place, the special place of God's dwelling, the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world and fellowship with God was changed. Fellowship with God, the way that Adam and Eve enjoyed it, was lost. But God in his grace and his mercy did not give up his plan to have his people living in his place, living under his rule, and enjoying his presence. As you read through Genesis, we see that God called Abraham out of a life of paganism in order to worship him. And God made these wonderful and glorious promises to Abraham. He promised to bless Abraham. He promised to give Abraham more descendants than he could ever count. And he promised to give Abraham and his descendants a particular land. So he told Abraham, your descendants will be my people and you will live in my place, this land that I will give you, and I will give you my laws, and you will live under my rule, and you will enjoy my presence. So God made these wonderful promises to Abraham. But by the end of Genesis, what we see is that though Abraham's descendants had began to grow in number, they were in Egypt, not the place where God had promised to give them. So the book of Exodus picks up, 
And as many years had gone by, the people of Israel continued to grow in number, but they were still in exodus. And unfortunately then, Pharaoh turned against the people of Israel and enslaved them. And they were treated brutally. They were oppressed. And they cried out. And the Lord saw them and he heard their cries. And so he called Moses and he raised up Moses to go and to lead his people out from Egypt, out from slavery, out from bondage, so that they could live as his people. And so the Lord redeemed his people, Israel, out from slavery. He rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He uh, performed mighty deeds on their behalf. He drew them out. He redeemed them. He saved them. He rescued them. And then he brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness where he met with them at Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that the Lord entered into this covenant relationship with his people, the people of Israel. And you see in chapter 6, verse 7, we were already of Exodus, we were told what the Lord was going to do. He said this, he said, I will take you, the people of Israel, to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He brought them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant relationship with them. And in order to live as God's people in his place, under his rule, and enjoy his presence, they needed to obey his laws and worship him in the way he prescribed. So at the end of Exodus, he instructed them to construct and assemble a tabernacle. The tabernacle would be in the midst of God's people. It would be this place where God's presence would dwell in the midst of his people in a special way. His presence with them would set them apart among all the peoples of the earth. So Exodus ends with the instructions for the tabernacle. The instructions for the tabernacle are bookended with God's promise to dwell among his people. So in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord said, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And then in chapter 29, verses 44 through 46, we read, so I will consecrate, uh, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The tabernacle... God's special place where his presence would dwell was also referred to as the tent of meeting. The tabernacle, the place of God's presence, would be where the place, also be the place where God would meet with his people. Tom Schreiner writes, the tent of meeting emphasizes that the Lord dwells with his people, that their greatest Joy comes from fellowship with him. Wow. And the people of Israel understood this. We see an affirmation of this in the Psalms, for example. 
In Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Psalm 26, 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The Lord's presence with his people, fellowship with the Lord, was their greatest joy. And it was an extraordinary privilege for the people of Israel. They understood that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. That there is more pleasure in His presence than in everything else the world can offer. God's presence is a good gift. Fellowship with Him It's an extraordinary privilege. So the book of Exodus ends with the construction and assembly of the tabernacle for the purpose of God dwelling among his people and meeting with his people. But listen carefully to what we read at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, verses 33 through 35. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory filled the tabernacle. But Moses could not enter. If Moses, God's chosen mediator, could not enter, how could anyone draw near to the presence of the Lord? The tabernacle became the dwelling place of God, but how would it become the tent of meeting? Leviticus stops the narrative to address the most important and fundamental issue regarding their existence as God's people. How can the Lord make his dwelling among sinful people? Or how can sinful people approach the Lord who is the Holy One? The Lord had redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Sinai and established the covenant with them. The tabernacle had been assembled and the Lord filled it with his holy presence. But what would happen next? Michael Morales writes, the covenant relationship established at Sinai calls for far more than the awe-inspiring reality of God's presence on earth. Its chief end is for Israel's engagement with God. Humanity's fellowship with the Creator. 
the drama of Leviticus turns upon this hope. How the abode of God can possibly become the meeting place between Yahweh and his people. So, the book of Leviticus is a continuation of the narrative from Exodus. The tabernacle had been prepared and the sanctuary was set up and the time had come for Moses to receive detailed instructions about the sacrifices and the ordination of the priests. Let's begin with an overview of the first 10 chapters. In chapters 1 through 7, we read about the sacrifices the Lord commanded his people to offer and how they are to be handled. In chapter 8, we read about the ordination and the installation of the priests. In chapter 9, we read about the first worship service at the tabernacle. And in chapter 10, we read about the judgment and death of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. First, the sacrifices. Chapters 1 through 7 provided the Israelites with the manual for offering sacrifices. From chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7, we read the descriptions of the five major offerings, which are the burnt, grain, peace, sin, and guilt offerings. We read about the burnt offering in chapter 1. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he, shall, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. R.C. Sproul notes that the distinctive feature of the burnt offering is that the whole animal, except for the skin, is burned on the altar, which symbolizes the total consecration of the worshiper to God's service. And it serves to cover the sins of the worshiper. In chapter 2, we read about the grain offering. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. The grain offering could serve as an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving, as well as the worshiper's dedication of himself to God. Usually the grain offering accompanied another offering. Chapter 3 covers the peace offering, which is also referred to as the fellowship offering. The emphasis of the peace offering was fellowship with the Lord by enjoying a meal. Through this offering, the Israelites recognized that peace and fellowship with God are precious gifts graciously given to God's people. Chapter 4 covers the sin offering. The sin offering underscored the need for atonement and forgiveness of sins. In chapter 4, verse 26, we read, 
and all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Sin and uncleanness make a person unfit to dwell in God's presence, making purification necessary. And so they would offer the sin offering. We read about the guilt offering in chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. So we see that the guilt offering was given for unintentional sins and to make restitution. When it talks about unintentional sins, it's not unintentional sins in the sense of like, I accidentally stepped on your foot, I'm sorry. It's more of like sinning in weakness, giving in to temptation, as opposed to high-handed sins. High-handed sins being, I don't care what the Lord says. I'm going to do what I want. Unintentional sins is the fact, it speaks to the fact that we are all sinners. We all sin. We all fall short. We all give in to temptation. We are all weak. We are all ignorant. We give in to sin, and therefore we need atonement to be made for our sins. The offerings are described through chapter 6, verse 7. And from chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, we read how the offerings are to, were to be handled, eaten, or disposed of. The instructions were specific, and it was important that they were followed carefully. Tom Schreider notes that when we consider the sacrifices as a whole, their fundamental purpose is to atone for sins before God so that fellowship with Him might be maintained. This was no small thing. Remember the words of the psalmist. Fellowship with God is sweet. Fellowship with God is precious. Fellowship with God, enjoying His presence, brings more pleasure than anything that the world has to offer. So these sacrifices were the means by which they could continue to enjoy God's sweet and precious presence. One of the ways I think the sacrifices help us is in teaching us the right response to God's saving grace in our lives. The people of Israel were saved by grace. God redeemed them out of Israel and graciously entered into a covenant with them. He gave them the law after he rescued them after he redeemed them. And so they were not redeemed because they adhered to the law, but they were given the law because God had redeemed them and it entered into a relationship with them as his people. And so in response, 
they were to worship the Lord and they were to offer these sacrifices, acknowledging their sin, their need for atonement, giving thanks and praise to God, expressing their gratitude, dedicating themselves to Him, committing their ways to the Lord. And so while we obviously do not offer sacrifices, we still come to the Lord in worship, acknowledging our sins and our need for forgiveness. We come to the Lord in worship to give thanks for His kindness that He has showed us, for redeeming us out of bondage and slavery to sin and death. We dedicate ourselves to Him. We consecrate our lives to Him. We say, Lord, You have saved us. And now we want to live our lives unto You as living sacrifices. And so while we don't offer these sacrifices that the people of Israel offered, they still are instructive for us in how we are to approach God and how we are to worship Him. After the description of the sacrifices and how they are to be handled, Leviticus turns our attention to the priests. In chapter 8, we read about the ordination and installation of the priesthood. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Chapter 8 is made up of seven parts, with each part beginning with the phrase, as the Lord commanded, stressing the need for the priests to carry out their ministry exactly as the Lord prescribed. The priests were the ones who spent all their time at the tabernacle, the special place of God's dwelling. They were the ones who oversaw the sacrifices being brought before the Lord. And so it was exceedingly important that they, as the priests who ministered continually before the Lord, did exactly what the Lord commanded. They were to worship the Lord in the way that He instructed. They were not to worship the Lord in the way that they saw fit. They did not get to say, well, I think we should worship the Lord in this way. Well, I feel most close to God when I do this. Well, I think this way is best. No. The Lord is holy. He is to be worshipped. And he tells us how we are to worship him. And for the priests, for the people of Israel, they needed to follow his instructions carefully. Another thing that stands out about the ordination process is that the people needed priests to minister on their behalf, but even the priests needed to make sacrifices for their own sake. They needed to go through a process of consecration because their presence defiled the tabernacle. They were unworthy to serve as priests in the sense that they were not inherently qualified to minister before the Lord. They needed to make atonement for their sins. They needed to be cleansed with water. They needed to put on holy garments. They needed to be made clean. Their sins needed to be forgiven 
Otherwise, they could not minister before the Lord. They could not serve as priests. After Aaron and his sons are ordained, chapter 9 turns our attention to the first worship service. So first we saw the sacrifices, then we read about the priests, and then chapter 9 is the first worship service. In chapter 9, we read about the first worship service at the tabernacle, with chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, functioning as the climax of the first 10 chapters. We read, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Remember, in Exodus chapter 40, we read about the Lord's unapproachability. In Leviticus chapter 9, Moses and Aaron enter the tent of meeting and all the people worship the Lord. The people of God were able to approach the Lord through sacrifices and an ordained priesthood to help with the offering of those sacrifices. When the people of God approached the Lord in the way he provided, they could worship him and enjoy his presence. In chapter 10, however, we see what happened when Aaron's sons failed to approach him in the way he commanded. The fourth thing we see is the death of Nadab and Abihu. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In chapter 8, we saw how the Lord gave the priests very specific instructions regarding how the priests were to minister before the Lord. Rather than doing things the way that the Lord had authorized, Nadab and Abihu decided to do things their own way. This was not an unintentional sin which Leviticus has addressed. This was a high-handed sin. This was defiance. They defied the Lord. They said, we are not going to do what the Lord has commanded. We are going to approach the Lord the way we want to, the way that we think is best. This was no small thing. When the people of Israel sinned, there was a process by which atonement could be made for their sins and they could receive forgiveness. But with this high-handed sin, with this complete and utter rebellion and rejection and utter trashing of the Lord's holiness, they experienced immediate 
judgment. They faced the wrath of God. The Lord would not allow his holiness to be violated. There are a few things that should leave an impression on us from the first 10 chapters of Leviticus. First, the Lord speaks. The problem facing the Israelites was not a problem they could fix. Their sin problem was not a problem that they could overcome. They could not find a way for themselves to dwell in the presence of a holy God. The Lord was the one whom they needed to fix the problem, and that is what he did. The book of Leviticus begins with the phrase, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. The Lord is the one who took initiative. The Lord is the one who spoke to them. The first eight chapters are primarily made up of divine speech. The Lord spoke. The Lord revealed. And the Lord instructed and commanded. What is even more amazing is that he did so in spite of the sin and rebellion of the Israelites. When you read through the book of Exodus, one thing that stands out is the lack of faith, the lack of gratitude, and the lack of obedience on the part of the Israelites. The Lord rescued them. He delivered them in a powerful, unmistakable way. He delivered them out of Egypt, set them free, brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, took them to Mount Sinai. Yet along the way, they complain and they grumble and they said crazy things like it was better for us in Egypt. They showed an extraordinary lack of faith because God had demonstrated his power on their behalf, yet they thought he wasn't going to continue to provide for them. They failed to obey them when Moses went to meet with the Lord and was delayed in returning. They made an idol, they made a golden calf, and they worshipped the golden calf and said, this is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. It's, it's extraordinary. Their lack of gratitude, their lack of faith, their lack of obedience to the Lord who loved them and chose them and redeemed them. Yet in spite of all of this, the Lord spoke to them. The Lord took that initiative to speak to the people who were otherwise helpless. He took the initiative so that they could be forgiven and enjoy fellowship with him. Of course, this is the pattern we see throughout all scripture. When God created Adam and Eve, he spoke to Adam. When before God sent the flood to cover the whole earth, he spoke to Noah so that he could preserve Noah and his family. When Abraham was living his life as a pagan, the Lord spoke to him and called him out. When Moses had run from his people and was living far from them, the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush. 
We could go on and on. The Lord spoke to his prophets. He spoke to his kings. He spoke to his people. We need to understand how wonderful and gracious the Lord is in speaking to us. Apart from the Lord speaking to us, we are helpless. We remain blind. We are incapable of knowing Him, of worshiping Him. We desperately need Him to speak to us, to take that initiative. And He does. He speaks to us. Not only did the Lord speak to the people of Israel, but He has spoken even more powerfully through Christ. The book of Hebrews begins in this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Lord speaks, and he has spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ. He has spoken so that we can hear, so we can receive, so that we can believe, so that we can know Him. God speaks. And brothers and sisters, we must listen. I think it's also important that we see that the Lord provides. The Lord speaks, the Lord provides. When the Lord spoke to Moses, he did so to provide the means by which their sin could be dealt with. An atonement could be made. He provided the way. He provided the sacrifices and the priesthood. In taking the initiative and speaking to them, he showed them the way they could live with him as his people. When we consider the way the Lord provided, I'm reminded of the time when the Lord tested Abraham. After Abraham's son Isaac was born, the Lord tested him. He said, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac. And so Abraham obeyed the Lord. He went to sacrifice his son. He took that step of faith. Can't imagine what he was going through. Can't imagine what he was thinking, but he obeyed. And when he and Isaac were going to make the sacrifice, Isaac noticed that something was missing. What are we going to use for the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say to him? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And indeed he did. Of course, the Lord did not make Abraham sacrifice his son Isaac but provided a ram for them to sacrifice. And I love that statement of faith by Abraham. The Lord will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Of course, that statement was ultimately and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Lord provided the ultimate sacrifice in the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, 12, we read, But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Lord provided the most valuable sacrifice of all for us. The Lord speaks. The Lord provides. And finally, the Lord meets. Why did the Lord speak? Why did he take the initiative to instruct the people of Israel? Why did he provide a way for their sins to be forgiven and atonement to be made? So that he could meet with them and make his dwelling among them. So they could enjoy fellowship with him and pleasures forevermore. Michael Morales shows how the imagery and symbolism of the tabernacle point back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, the Garden of Eden was the special place of God's dwelling with his people. The tabernacle, in a sense, became the new Garden of Eden, planted in the midst of God's people. Michael Morales writes, affirming the tabernacle as a cultic restoration of Eden's garden, the theology and narrative drama of Leviticus become apparent. Exodus 40 closes with a wonder. The Garden of Eden, planted, as it were, in the midst of Sinai's arid wilderness. Israel's mediator, however, is unable to enter through Eden's gates into the glory of the divine presence, meaning Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting. Here Israel is brought face to face with the fundamental question that has perplexed human civilization across the ages and cultures of history. How does one get back inside? Back to the golden age. Back to paradise with God. The legislation of Leviticus then is not merely offering tedious ritual instruction. Rather, it is narrating a theological story. Leviticus begins with Israel standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. If Moses the mediator may not enter, then how will it be possible for the tabernacle to become the tent of meeting between God and all Israel? With the opening verse, the God who dwells within begins to speak revealing the way of entry, the way back to the tree of life. To understand Leviticus, then, is to understand the way of Yahweh, the path of life. The first ten chapters of Leviticus teach us many wonderful things about the Lord our God, and we've only scratched the surface. Of course, as we've seen, what we read in these chapters point to Jesus. The book of Hebrews brings that to light and impresses it on us in powerful ways. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Wow. We who have been united to Christ have confidence to enter the holy places. We have confidence to approach the Lord. Jesus has opened a new way for us. Friend, if you are not a Christian, we want you to know that there is nothing greater, nothing sweeter, nothing more pleasurable or more desirable than knowing God, having fellowship with Him, enjoying His presence. And He has provided a way, a new and living way, for us to draw near to Him, to enter His presence. And He has done so by providing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He sent Jesus into the world so that Jesus could live a perfectly sinless life, unlike the priests in Leviticus. He is the high priest who does not need to make atonement for his own sins, but lived a perfectly sinless life, perfectly obeying God, and thus was able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice of infinite value, the sacrifice once for all, so that everyone who believes in him will receive the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Everyone who believes in Jesus will receive the forgiveness of sins and will be welcomed into the presence of God. You can know God. You can enjoy fellowship with him. But it is only through Jesus. You can only come to God by the way that he has provided. But God has graciously provided this way for all who believe. Everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved, will receive the forgiveness of sins, and will be able to draw near to God with confidence, full assurance of faith. If you're not a Christian, our greatest hope, our greatest desire, our greatest prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ, that you will go to him, that you will be saved, and that you will know and enjoy God forever. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who, who are Christians, who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, who have been united to Christ, let us not take for granted that the Lord has provided for us a new and living way to draw near to Him, to enter with full assurance of faith, His presence, where there is pleasure forevermore. We are able to enjoy fellowship with Him. We are able to enjoy His presence, both individually and corporately, when we are alone and we are, when we are together. We have the opportunity to enjoy His presence when we are alone. Jesus 
would spend time alone in prayer with the Father. He would commune alone with the Father. We too can do this. We can spend time alone enjoying God's presence as we seek Him in His Word and in prayer. We can enjoy God's presence. I want to encourage you, don't take that for granted. Don't miss those opportunities. Before you look at your phone, open up your computer, turn on the TV, when you get out of bed, spend a few moments enjoying God's presence. Look for those opportunities throughout your day to enjoy God's presence. We also do this together. We enjoy God's presence when we come together as we are today. What makes our gathering special is God's presence here with us. God commands us to do the things that we do. He commands us to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And so we sing songs together because this is the way that God has commanded us to worship Him. And so we sing songs together that are rich in gospel truth. We pray together. We preach the Word because He has commanded the preaching of His Word. We take communion together and so forth. We do these things because this is how the Lord has instructed us to worship Him. And as we do these things, as we come before Him by faith, He is here with us. Let's not take for granted that the best part about our gatherings is God's sweet and precious presence. When we gather together, He is with us. When we gather together with other believers in Bible studies or small groups, He is with us. His presence is sweet. It is precious. There is pleasure forevermore. It is life-giving. And he has provided the way for us to approach him. He has provided the way for us to draw near to him. He has provided a way for us to enter in to those holy places. And he has done so through Jesus, through his blood which was sacrificed for us, the new and living way. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are the one who speaks to us. Apart from your revelation, we would remain in darkness, helpless, unable to save ourselves, unable to reconcile ourselves to you, unable to enjoy your presence, but you graciously speak to us. You speak to us, you provide the way for us to draw near to you, and you meet with us. We thank you and praise you for your sweet presence. We pray that we will be people who never take your presence for granted. We pray that we will be people who recognize that there is peace, there is joy, there is pleasure in your presence. So we pray that we will pursue your presence both individually and corporately when we are alone and when we are together. May we be people of your presence as you have provided a way in Jesus for us to draw near. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.